This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. Patients need greater resources. Physicians need more time with their patients. And we have so much work that needs to get done that needs to be paid for that in the absence of a total cost of care model, it's not possible. What we're seeing now is now that they have many of these positions within their networks, how to actually drive the performance to the next level of quality achievements, to the next level of improvement of clinical outcomes and total health outcomes, and then, of course, on total cost of care. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Durin. One of our most popular topics for the past year has been new models and disruptions in primary care. So today, I have two experts here to talk, Valinda Rutledge, the CEO of the new company Valinda's working with, Dr. Sanjay Dadamani. They're both from Upstream Care. Upstream's a new player in the primary care space. They just completed a very successful funding round. And so I wanted to talk to them about what they're hearing from the market, why they developed the model they did, because I know many of the disruptors pretty well, and the way Upstream's attacking this problem is a little bit different. Thanks so much for being back, Valinda, and so happy to have you on, Sanjay. Sanjay, I'll go to you first. You are a clinical cardiologist, heart failure specialist. How did you end up running a primary care company? Thank you for having me on, Trevor. I'm Sanjay Dadamani. I'm the CEO at Upstream Care. We are a value-based primary services organization that is taking full risk in primary care. I'm a clinician, heart failure specialist. I really have been focused my working life on the care of the poor, sick, frail, elderly patients many of whom are very dependent and have multiple medical problems. Heart failure and cardiac issues with advancing age are well-recognized. That's how I had my career shift into this. And part of that reason was frustration in episodic hospital-based care, where really only a sliver of the population were getting advanced therapies, such as LVADs and heart transplants and other procedural interventions, but that the really persistent, consistent, tedious work of taking care of patients in the comforts of their homes, in the communities with better care models was what was needed. And the alignment with payments happened when I shifted my working life from New York to Geisinger Health System in Pennsylvania, and then went and worked in the federal government at CMMI. It really opened Open my eyes to not just the challenges that exist, but the opportunities to solve them. That's a great story. Thanks. When I talk to our member health systems, I hear primary care is kind of in turmoil right now. Many systems know that the model's not working and they're trying to come up with a vision for the future. You get to have very similar conversations with health systems, medical groups about their vision for the future of primary care. What are you hearing from the market? What are those pain points that informed the way you developed Upstream? Gone are the days when you're not feeling well and the doctor comes to your home or tells you to just come on in the same day or you sit in sort of waiting area until you're seen and your problems are addressed very quickly before a lot of downstream consequences. And we know that most primary care physicians see a mixed panel of patients, the young, the working, the very old, and a lot of focus has shifted from not just writing prescriptions, but also to preventive care, uh, making sure that care gaps are closed and that there's quality achieved on behalf of the payers that pay them or on working with the government where there's tremendous burden of regulatory requirements to be taking care of patients. 
in that lens, there's so much variability and an almost unsustainable way in the traditional fee-for-service. We've seen an evolution of payment innovation through providing incentives, some quality payments, gain sharing, the evolution of ACOs that have just exploded across the country and have also demonstrated tremendous value and return on investment from a federal government perspective the traditional Medicare shared savings program that has taken it to a certain level of advanced payment model. And then this newer, much greater shift to total cost of care. We know this is prevalent in Medicare Advantage, but the number of participants are relatively small in total cost of care. And yet patients need greater resources. Physicians need more time with their patients. And we have so much work that needs to get done that needs to be paid for that in the absence of a total cost of care model, it's not possible. But when health systems look at this, they also have consolidated the market, going on a buying spree of practices, both primary and specialty. And what we're seeing now is that they have many of these positions within their networks, how to actually drive the performance to the next level of quality achievements, to the next level of improvement of clinical outcomes and total health outcomes, and then, of course, on total cost of care as we race against the clock with the solvency of Medicare trust fund that looms. That's a good transition to you, Belinda. What do you hear from regulatory government side about their viewpoint on what the future of primary care can look like and maybe specifically the innovation models through CMMI? Clearly, we recognize in this country that we have not put enough resources into primary care. Most of the resources that at the national level has been in innovation and specialty and new developments in specialty care. But we all recognize, and particularly during the COVID pandemic, the importance of primary care and to strengthen that and to give primary care, both at the practice level and at the provider level, more resources, the amount to burnout that's happening at the primary care level, provider level, is just much higher than we see at the specialty level. It's very clear from a CMS and a CMMI and a legislative perspective that we need to figure out ways to give more resources. One of the things that they're looking at is strengthening total cost of care models and allowing more waivers that would allow primary care physicians to waive some of the regulatory barriers that they currently have in terms of providing some of this care. So, for instance, some of them are taking a look at waiving copay allowing the waiver of copays, particularly for things such as chronic care management and other copays that sometimes are a barrier. They're also allowing a more expanded use of non-physician providers like PAs and NPs to work in concert with a physician in terms of developing the patient plan. But going beyond that, then they can take it from there and actually having in-depth conversations with the patient and allowing the patient that care transfer. What CMMI has said and CMS is by 2030, they want 100% of Medicare beneficiaries. That includes Medicare Advantage as well as traditional Medicare in an accountable relationship. And so to achieve that goal, Trevor, they're going to have to expand primary care and give primary care those resources needed to get into those accountable relationships. 
That's a great angle. We've heard the health system and medical group perspective, government perspective. You have just completed a very successful funding round. How's the perspective from private equity and other funders changing? They've made a lot of investments in this space. I'm sure they've learned a lot about what's working and maybe what's not working as quickly. What are you hearing from funders about their expectations and learnings of new primary care models? Healthcare innovation is an investment. We know of great strides made in healthcare historically through hospitals that invested into redesign of care models, surgeries, interventions, catheters, clinical procedures, and even value-based care. But this next wave of investment is quite steep. There are capital reserve requirements to participate in alternate payment models. There are the need to create the infrastructure and the workforce. And a lot of this work is taking place outside of hospitals and to some extent, uh, both within health systems, but also outside of health systems in terms of the explosion in data interoperability that I think is being used across the bio and life sciences area. And so we see private equity as a very important infusion of capital. In our case, it helps us to not only grow, but also to advance our capabilities and expertise, because some of the portcos that are part of the investors also have deep expertise in various key areas. And we really view ourselves as a platform that can build upon best practices wherever they exist. As an example, behavioral health would be a key area where there's a ton of innovation going on and a national call to action. So in that sense, private equity, I think, plays a very important role that needs to be recognized if we are going to be advancing to accelerate the pace of progress. With all that in mind, now I want to give you an opportunity to talk more about Upstream's care model, which from my perspective is pretty unique in that it's a pharmacy-heavy care model. And I know that you've been doing it long enough, you've had some success, and you've been able to learn what's worked. And so I'd love to hear more about it. As a physician, I was very intellectually curious when I first met the founder of Upstream, Fergus Hoban, who is a pharmacist and who had spent the bulk of his career refining and developing an integrated care model that was led by a pharmacist and a broader care team, including nurses and others involved, really to drive the work that physicians needed to get done, but did not need to be the ones transacting or doing that work themselves. And that there was far greater efficiency by creating what we today know as an integrated care team. Doing that at scale takes a very different level of expertise And that's what we have created at Upstream. And in particular, the flywheel has a very key element. While we work from within primary care physicians' practices, we're working to consolidate the patient's care plans across specialists and primary care. And we know what a pain point that can be in terms of integrating those care plans between primary care and specialty. Our focus is on medically complex patients, although we take risk bearing across the entire population. And so our IP is around risk stratification, understanding those patients with greater needs for resources and clinical interventions. Our pharmacists do work around identifying medication therapy opportunities to optimize the clinical outcomes of patients who are living with chronic conditions. Is a medication appropriate, effective, safe, accessible? And for example, when we say accessible, we mean free or almost free to the patient. 
And then in this broader lens, addressing health equity, social determinants, food is thy medicine for patients living with diabetes, not just another pill or an injection. And so having a more comprehensive care plan for the patient that consolidates a lot of the work of others and then addresses health equity and social determinants, shared decision-making, combining licensed and non-licensed care team members so that we really can address the whole person experience through the upstream platform. What have you heard in terms of feedback from patients on this model? Intuitively, you would expect they like it. It's more time with a provider, but do they get it that spending more time with the pharmacist is a big benefit to them? Patients are not having their voices heard. The very first visit that we have with a patient, the clock literally turns off and we have a 90 plus minutes for that very first visit. No one has asked them how they feel about their experience with medications. Medications also reminds them of their illness and suffering from multiple medical problems and a life they had before all of that. Taking that into consideration that the person first and understanding that many of these things are a means to an end of a better quality of life, a hospital visit being something that a hospital stay is is actually a patient comes out, while it might be life-saving, the patient comes out weaker and having to sort of reset back into the community. We treat many of these as sentinel events in a patient's life and to address that then in a very methodical manner, but that is very person-centered. And where patients struggle, we start to help make sure that we address those. To some patients, it may be medical transportation. To some patients, it may be loneliness. It may be their lack of supports and infrastructure. Or it may be that they're suboptimally clinically optimized. In other words, there's a better medication opportunity or better control of their symptoms so that they can lead better quality of life. So I think it's resonated not just with patients, but their families. And remember, then a de-risked patient becomes a very different care experience when the patient comes to see their primary care physician, PCP can focus on the relationship, they can focus on complex decision making, and they can focus on being the architect of not just the care team, but the direction and roadmap for the patient while having the work get done between visits. Oftentimes that is the part which doesn't happen. And so that's where we come in and fill that gap. That's exciting to hear about the care model and the consumer perspective. Valinda, connect that back to what you just talked about the next evolution of CMMI and total cost of care models. It's really exciting some of the things that CMMI is looking for in terms of the next evolution. And they're looking in terms of integrating them within their newest ACO, ACO Reach. And there are a couple of things that they're looking at. Number one is they've started having listening sessions about the integration of specialty care within total cost of care. Will that be a bundle? Will it be waivers? How will that handle? And so they're asking the stakeholder community, what would that look like? And what does total cost of care model participants need for that to happen? The first step will be in terms of data. So they're planning on over the next couple quarters that they're going to be sending to any total cost of care model participants data in which they're looking at specific episodes. So you're able to look at a specialty care as defined by an episode embedded within a total cost of care model. So that'll be exciting. They've had the bundle payment initiative and then they've had ACOs and they're bringing them together. 
the first step is for the ACOs to be able to take a look at what is the episodic cost, including quality of high cost episodes with the specialist. And then from there, they want to know these total cost of care participants, what they will need to create incentives to allow a closer affiliation between the specialty care, such as cardiology, oncology, pulmonary, with total cost of care, particularly primary care. It's exciting. The next few years, we're going to see bundles and ACOs coming together and different ways in which we're aligning incentives between specialists and primary care. That is exciting. I can see how your model's a step in that direction. Sanjay, can you tell us a little bit about the outcomes you've had so far? I know you've had pretty exciting results. The biggest news is that we are growing so rapidly and that we are investable. And part of that is delivering on the promise. We have scaled from 270 primary care physicians to well over 1,000 primary care physicians in the past 12 months. We are tracking approximately blended mid-single digit savings, which is very encouraging in your first year of value-based total cost of care. And that number continues to rise. And then more importantly, in terms of quality, our achievements over set of quality measures, stars and HEDIS ratings remain very, very high, certainly above the market average. And on a blended set of measures that we look at about 11 measures, while the market tracks that are on 3.83 out of 5, we're at like 4.5 out of 5. So there's validation on that front as well. So improvement in quality, improvement in savings, and continued relevance to providing the resources to primary care physicians and growing at a very fast rate. Those are exciting early results. As you think about your success, many others trying to tackle problems in primary care from different directions, what do you think the next generation of primary care is going to look like from both the patient, provider, health system, medical group, and other stakeholders' perspective? Is it going to be fragmented with a bunch of different approaches, or do you think people are going to share some common learnings and there'll be a agreed-upon best model? Loaded question. I would say that we actually start with that there are common challenges. We're seeing physicians burning out at a very fast rate. Two-thirds of practices in primary care have considered selling their practices. And so it's not just about seeing the market consolidation, it's about seeing why that happens. And it is that they simply lack the infrastructure and the resources to have a satisfying doctor-patient relationship. It is so important to restore that relationship if we're going to address the health costs in this country. Otherwise, we will continue to have a very fragmented procedural specialist, non-procedural specialists, and primary care physicians without that harmonization. And remember, 90% of the medical costs can be actually influenced by a primary care physician. And so to me, this is the last great hope that uh, markets have solved every other problem. We need to have a viable healthcare solution that is there for independent primary care physicians and even for health systems that acquired practices to be very successful in in the delivery of value-based care. We have the highest possible clinical excellence. We have the best patient experience, but we also have the best workforce experience. And that burnout is very real. So the number of hours to do this kind of work we saw in a publication mid-year is 27 hours of workday, which is not humanly possible. And so we need to make those investments. Right now, 3% of all healthcare spend is in primary care. That number needs to rise if we're going to reduce the total costs in this country. 
Sanjay and Valinda, I'm really appreciative that you were willing to come here and share not just about Upstream, but really the market intel that you're hearing from many different stakeholders in this space and how you see primary care evolving. So thanks so much for sharing your perspective with our listeners here on SG2 Perspectives and look forward to talking to you and tracking your success very soon. Great. Thank you so much. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments or ideas for episodes, and you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Vizient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at vizientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.